I definitely went through a period, and I'm sure this is relatable for a lot of young people of color. I saw whiteness as a paradigm of a lot of things, like success and beauty. And it was definitely a function of like the media I consumed because it wasn't a function of like my neighborhood. Like I said, I grew up in Scarborough. In Canada, as a journalist of color, you always had to find your own way. You had to find your own crew and your own support system. Don't fall prey to prestige. Don't fall prey to status because at the end of the day, you will excel in, in what you love to do. And I really love what I'm doing right now. Hey everyone, welcome to the Agneta podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chen. I also produce and edit this podcast. For this episode, I'm really excited to have Anita Lee with us. She's a journalism expert whose work touches upon media business models, diversity, ethics, and innovation. She's also the co-founder of Canadian Journalists of Color and a member of the Online News Association Board of Directors. Welcome to the podcast, Anita. Thanks for having me, Amy. So before we get started, I'm curious to know what is your Chinese name? Because I only know you as Anita. Oh, I love that question. And I haven't been asked that in so long. It's Lei Yun Lei. Okay. And what does it mean? You know what? This is embarrassing because I'm pretty sure my parents have told, like they told me way back in the day, but I think I need to double check because I I actually don't know. I personally love Chinese names because I feel like within, you know, two or three characters, you're really able to like build out who this character, you know, that's, that's how Asian parents get the Chinese names, but also go to like the fortune teller guy or girl and, you know, do your like astrology stuff. Oh, totally. And it's just a whole, yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. And I, I feel like people really grow into their yeah. names. Well, um, now I feel like I have to ask, like, I wish I asked before <laughs> I came on this podcast because my dad is actually one of those, like growing up, he was very much into that. Like, looking up astrology, figuring out like, my dad is really, yeah. So he was like, he was like, okay, like the time you were born, the date, like geographically your birthplace, like, okay, so what's the ideal name for Anita? So he was actually the person in, um, on both sides of my family, on my mom and my dad's side, who people tapped for like Chinese names because he was the expert. Yeah. So, so I actually, I know that I have a really good name. I just, I'm embarrassed to like, like, (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm like, Oh, this is like bad Asian child. Like I'm feeling the shame, but I thought like a casual question. Um, you know, my, my dad still texts me and he like follows the Chinese, like the free TD calendar. He'll be like, okay, today's a bad day for doing this. So like, let's not do this like event today or like if he's gonna open like a let's say like a new bank account or something he'd be like today's not a good day because the Chinese calendar said this and I'm like can we just not follow the Chinese calendar it's like it's so limiting and it's funny because I even had like my dad said I had a good luck color, which was black. I remember I had a, I had a good luck direction. So I remember when I moved into at, to Carleton on campus to do my master of journalism, my dad wanted to make sure that the, the head of my bed was facing like the north because that was like the yes. best luck. So he's always like yep. every time when I moved to New York, that was the same thing. So that's definitely something that I'm very like immersed in from like from a really <laughs> young age. Oh, man, I think our dads would have a lot of fun just like creating someone's house. Okay, so a lot of people know the work Anita, but we want to get to know the non-work Anita. And in our pre-interview, we talked about how you were raised in Scarborough and me and Markham, um, and that we actually lived only a few blocks away. And you said you don't know, well, you don't think there is really a place in North America that's as unique as Scarborough. And for those that don't know the geography and demographic of Scarborough, it's a suburb in the greater Toronto area. Can you describe why Scarborough is so special to oh, you? Oh, yeah. So I'm a huge Scarborough stan. It's interesting because I, anyone who's from Toronto knows Scarborough has historically a bad rap. It's like associated with crime and grime. Um, and I feel like that association is actually like 
very, I mean, it's very racially charged, right? Because the suburb itself is more than 70% racialized. And it's definitely gone through so many changes over the decades, because it was actually a very affluent white suburb. um, Until like, there was a lot of immigration. So it's like, it's a hotbed for like, in the home, a home to many um, new immigrants, including my family who moved there from Hong Kong. So to me, it's really special because I really don't know any other place in the world that actually really is truly diverse. So if you look at my class pictures from like kindergarten, it is almost perfectly diverse in the sense that there's like, you know, Asian, East Asian kids, there's South Asian kids, there's black kids, there's white kids. I think obviously like the the only group, racial group missing would be indigenous communities. Like outside of that, it was like the most diverse you could get in terms of like integration as well. I guess I lived more in a like a working class and middle class neighborhood. So Scarborough is the kind of environment where different communities and people from different backgrounds are always in each other's spaces. And so it's kind of like, even of course, there was like, it's not perfect. I'm not creating like some sort of utopia. But when I was growing up, it's just it was not out of the norm to go over to your friend's house for like Indian food. Or you have a friend, like you hear Caribbean slang in school. So it's just like a very natural part of growing up. And so diversity was the norm for me. It's an example of true pluralism and true multiculturalism and the kind of multiculturalism that Canada uh, purports or expresses to have, but really doesn't, you know, not many communities in Canada actually really capture that kind of diversity. And as somebody who lived in New York City and in Brooklyn in particular, that was like the only other kind of environment where I experienced that. Um, But yeah, it was pretty rare growing up in like the late 80s and early 90s and being exposed to that level of diversity. Yeah. I mean, when I meet friends from New York City and I want to describe Markham and Scarborough, because I literally lived on the border on Steels, um, you know, I would tell them there's a Hong Kong barbecue shop beside a Tamil video store, beside a Baskin Robbins. It was just like, and then, you know, there's one person that goes to all three of these places. And it was so common, you know, again, like similarly to you, we had a friend, his parents or uh, his family's from Afghanistan. His mom would like cook us food from there that we'd never had before. And this was like third grade. So it was like young children um, being taught about different cultures and different foods. So yeah, when I, you know, when I went to university, when someone told me like, oh, you're my first Asian friend, I was like, what? Is that even a, it was just a strange concept to me. Yeah, totally. I would say a lot of young racialized people grow up kind of idealizing white experiences for lack of a better term, because of a lot, a lot of media at the time was very, very homogenous, especially in Canada. But because my high school was actually like predominantly Asian, my paradigm of beauty was actually Asian beauty. To me, like when I was growing up, I was like the prettiest girls in my school were Asian, right? So it's it really did something for, I guess, how I saw myself in a positive way. Right. Yeah, because in our pre-interview, we spoke about how in middle school, both of us had this desire to live a, you coined it so accurately, this white American lifestyle. You know, maybe because of the books we read, the music we listened to, or the media we consumed, I don't know. But it wasn't in elementary school. It wasn't in high school, university. It was like this pre-teenhood mm-hmm. where you're figuring out who you are, what your identity is. And I mean, we were old enough to like translate documents for our parents, like government documents, but not really old enough to have experienced like real world problems, maybe racism, um, discrimination. Talk to me about preteenhood or, or going into high school. What was that time like? I definitely went through a period and I'm sure this is relatable for a lot of young people of color where I was just like, okay, like I saw whiteness as a paradigm of a lot of things like success and beauty. And it was definitely a function of like the media I consumed because it wasn't a function of like my neighborhood. Like I said, I grew up in Scarborough. 
for a couple of years in, in middle school, when I was trying to figure myself out, that is, is kind of the lens I had this idea of like a foursome in high school, like a group of girlfriends, right? And it's always usually like a white group of girlfriends, like they're going on like road trips, they're like, sleepovers, sleepovers. exactly. I was just gonna say that sleepovers, which is like a huge thing. in like, East Asian culture is like where you know, you're not allowed. I was actually just talking about this with my cousins. Yesterday, um, we were like, yeah, none of us were allowed to go and sleepovers. Growing up. Well, my mom was like, you have a bed at home. Why do you want to sleep on the ground at someone's house? Like, that's not polite. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't even know if I would let my kids have sleepovers these days, but she was right. Probably, you know, it was hilarious. Well, it was just like, Oh my gosh, you don't know. Like the parents, like, I yeah. don't know, like it might, it's unsafe, you know, you know, it's just like a lot of precautions. Right. So, yeah. So it was just like those kind of like very stereotypical experiences. And they were very much from like American media, right. At the time, like even Canadian media wasn't like, I just, there was so much cultural, like cultural hegemony coming from America. And it's just like the main thing that you're consuming. Right. At the time. So that was like kind of where my mindset was in middle school. But as I entered high school, I think I became like, I think I was quite, I became more of a radical activist actually when I was younger. And that's actually kind of when this like spark of like understanding about the injustices of the world came about. Like it was actually probably in my like mid teens. And I I took a world issues class. This is around the time. So I, I was kind of like attuned to the injustice of the world. I also like, you know, traveled a lot during this period. So my parents, you know, we went on vacation maybe three times a year, oftentimes to like, you know, Florida, where we experienced like pretty overt racism at like places like Disney World. And, you know, when I was 16, I went to like Europe for the first time and I went to Italy and I saw like yellow face and black face on a billboard. So it was around this time I started, you know, being, waking up to the injustices of the world, especially around racial injustice. And then beyond that, I also started consuming a lot of different kind of media. So I started like, I remember really getting into film and watching Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which really, I think was a very formative experience uh, for me about understanding about the history of systemic racism in America, especially against black communities. Um, And then around this time, I also started getting into Chris Rock as a stand-up comic who also was like very, very much groundbreaking around talking about racism in his comedy. So around this time, I started getting involved in like more, I guess, community-driven or activist groups. Like I joined Chinese Canadian National Council's Toronto chapter and I was involved with like the youth programs there from like a young age at 16. I became very different from how I was in middle school. And I do think my environment really helped that because I was in Scarborough, right? So I didn't, I wasn't like super immersed in a homogenous culture. You sort of touched upon this story um, and diversity in storytelling is really important to you and your early education in racism and speaking out about it actually came from your dad, you said, who worked a white collar job in a blue collar industry. Yes. Um, And there was another event that sort of gave you this awakening in high school. Can you retell that story from the Italian cruise? Because I, when you told me that, I was just like, no way, that couldn't have happened. But I this know. is an awful story. Oh my gosh. It was, it was a very formative experience. And it was like the first, I think, personal essay I ever wrote about racism. And I was about 16 years old. And my family, like... They really, God bless them, they love cruises. And so we we were on this like a cruise that it was like a European cruise. And it was like, I think we docked in Italy. So it was like an Italian, largely Italian, like uh, passengers, largely Italian staff. And I remember attending, like they have nightly shows on this, on these cruise ships, right? Um, and one of them was like a stand-up comic. And so I remember at one point during the comedy show, a spotlight comes on my family and we're like the only visible minorities or people of color in the audience. We're like definitely the only 
Asian people and everyone else is like European, like white Europeans. And so the spotlight comes on us and this guy makes a joke about how Asian people or Chinese people eat dogs and the entire, like the entire audience laughs. And so my entire family is like, I'm frozen in my seat. I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening to us. This is insane, right? This is like basically bullying on a mass scale. And so what happened was my dad stood up and he like pointed a finger at the comedian and was like, this is not okay. This is racist. And so we left the auditorium and we ended up getting an apology from the captain and everything and an invitation to dinner, which we declined because I'm like, why would I want to, I don't want to eat with you. Like this is an awful experience, right? But it was just very like, it was it was really awful. And oh, the one thing, the most important thing that I forgot from this is that when my dad stood up uh, for our family, everybody in the audience was booing us. It was like this weird Kafka-esque, like surreal experience where people were like, why aren't you taking the racism and booing us? And it was just like very old school European folks. We were just like, why aren't you playing along? Um, And that's only like 15 something years ago. Yeah, exactly. So I'm 33 now and 16 was like basically half half my life ago. So it was really not that long ago. Um, And then I wrote an essay about it. And I remember talking about it with my friends at the time. And it was just like, in my high school, I was definitely one of the few people who understood issues of like, racial injustice, it was definitely not something that was talked about a lot. So like you like you referenced, like that was something that my dad educated me about from a young age, because he definitely experienced it as somebody who was a very talented person in his industry, but never really got the respect he deserved. Right. That's so, I mean, let's go Papa Lee, you know, like I feel like my parents are the old school Asian types where like if somebody said something racist to them, they would smile, Mm -hmm. nod and just like walk away. And I've witnessed that happen a few times. And as as I've gotten older, even if it's like an older grandma, like in Chinatown or something, I'll just be like, I'll just speak back to that person be like, are you okay? That's what I always ask them. I said, can I help you? Are you okay? I don't say anything else, but like they then internalize that, oh, I I said something wrong perhaps and racist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, it makes me so angry because I know a lot of, you know, older aunties and uncles are so, they think their English is not good enough. So they don't want to like, you know, talk back and they think it's like they're in danger or something. It just, it's really one of the things like when people bully older Asian uh, aunties and uncles, it kills me. Just, but it, it, that hurts my heart, but it's, I'm actually fortunate because I remember my, my, my grandma. Um, so my dad's mom is also was also always bold. Like she was actually once she was talking in a McDonald's and some uh, like a white guy was like, don't like you're talking so loudly to speak English and stuff. And she's like, this not library. Like is that exactly exactly <laughs> that. So she was like a badass, right? Like she was just like, yeah, exactly. yeah. she's like this not library. And like, that's like, she like her English is obviously very limited, but she wasn't having it. And so I think like, yeah. I like to think I come from a line of people who actually stand up for, you know, stand up for their rights. And also my mother was yeah. very, like, I have so many stories about her. Like I've witnessed her basically like chasing down somebody in a price chopper <laughs> because he was like, speak English because she was speaking Cantonese to me. Is, is this the one at Bridalwood Mall? Yes, it was the one at Bridalwood you Mall. You know what? My mom also yelled at someone in that fake ball card in Bridalwood <laughs> Mall when we were kids. And I was so embarrassed. But now that I think of it, I would have done the same thing because I think we were like opening the the fake bulk barn tins and yeah. stuff. It was that like snack store. And then I think the person was like, hey, like, what are your kids doing? And then my mom's like, aren't I a customer? Like, I'm going to buy stuff here. That's where they're opening. But like, that was the most embarrassing point, I think, for me as a kid. But now I think of it, I'm like, I shouldn't oh, totally. be embarrassed. Your mom's a badass. You know? Like my mom's 
Yeah. yeah. And I can't believe it both happened at That's that hilarious. mall. The bridal well, mall. Clearly the price dropper there or the bridal mode mall has issues because like, I mean, like it was like the guy who said it was actually like a stock boy at price dropper. I actually remember it so clearly. Cause you know, these experiences are so formative. And so my mom was just like, she chased him down and she's like, we can speak whatever language we want. And I remember there's another kid. I remember on this, like in this playground. And he was also saying like, go back. He was like, go back to your country. And my mom's like, you go back to your country. She's like, go back to <laughs> Britain or whatever and it was like it was like amazing like snaps from my mom oh, man. she was a savage oh, from totally. the beginning She's so and my mom has always been a very like strong vocal woman and I'm, I just feel like I I walk in her footsteps in fact like even though I told you about how my dad was the one who did educate me from like like a theoretical standpoint he's like my dad's an intellectual but my mother was the one who like always had a lot of emotional intelligence a lot really bold personality and just would not take shit from people which I love <laughs> and I like to think of myself like that too yeah I think my mother's the same I you know when I was young she's like you know you're just like me I see like so many characters I'm like no way and then the older I get I'm like yeah wow my mom's a pretty badass she does a lot of cool stuff so moving on, you co-founded the Canadian Journalists of Color group after coming home from working in New York City and not seeing that support um, for color journalists, whether it was for networking or just connecting to each other for jobs and mentorship. Talk about that difference between the U.S. and Canada in this regard. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's a huge difference. And I I always tell people like I was, I'm born and raised in Toronto, but going to New York, it was the first time I really, truly felt seen. Um, and, you know, that's like, a, you know, the narrative that you have growing up in this country is that it's multicultural, like America has all these race problems. But and that's definitely true that America is, has a lot of race problems. But in the pockets where people get it you feel so seen and so supported, right? So living in the two years in New York, it was like, great. I felt so validated. And there was like a community of people who understood. So that that's the first thing I want to mention that is really different from Canada. There's like less of that community because, and I don't even blame people because like there's a fear of speaking out because this country is so much smaller. Industry is so much smaller, including journalism. The other thing is like, there's a lot of professional associations and programming for BIPOC or journalists of color in America. So there's stuff like Asian American Journalists Association. There's the National Association of Black Journalists, National National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Um, and then I was also part of a, a program at Pointer, which is like a really respected think tank in St. Petersburg, Florida for journalism, where it was basically like um, a leadership program for people of color in media. And so that kind of stuff just frankly does not exist in this country, despite all the stuff we talk about around multiculturalism and diversity, like it just doesn't exist, right? There's no infrastructure to support that. So I wanted to found something that really filled that gap and address that need. And I think you have. I think I've joined the group very early on and that's where I met you. Um, and I just see the, you know, from different meetings that we have and and talks that there's so many young journalists that are so eager and they finally feel like, you know, they have mentorship. Even now, I don't feel like I have mentorship because I'm like, I, I consider myself mid-career and I look up, I'm like, who can I go to? to for advice. You know, I see the group of like media girlfriends. I'm like, I want that. But I do that with my friends mm -hmm. already. You know, we will text each other jobs. We'll, you know, vent to each other. But there really isn't like a more established framework for yeah, that. Yeah, completely. You always, in Canada, as a journalist of color, you always had to find your own way. You had to find your own crew and your own support system. And so I just wanted to make it easy for folks. Like I knew what it was like being in the industry. And I was like, after, after coming back from the US and feeling so invigorated and inspired, I was like, you know what? It's time. And it's not like, I'm building this on the backs of so many amazing um, journalists of color before me, in particular women of color who've done this work. And also like, I just want to shout out like also the fact that I co-founded this with Sadie Ansu 
sorry, who approached me um, to possibly like do something of this kind. We, like we had an idea that we wanted to create some sort of network for journalists of color. And that was like in September, 2018. And after Sonny Dillon's piece, medium post about the microaggressions and the racism he faced at the globe came out. That's when we kind of like hit the ground running. You're absolutely right that it's just hard to find. And it's so gratifying to see the kind of like, I actually save the posts that I see where people are like, I'm a long time lurker, but this community is so amazing. Or like, I feel so inspired by this group. Like this amazing, like this is the kind of stuff that gives me life. Like it's the reason why I do it. It's the reason why I pour my time and my resources and occasionally my own money into the group because I, it just feels really nice to have that kind of support system. Like you just work better and you're a better journalist for it, you know? And you're right. I feel like the group that we have, it's such a safe space, you know, to ask like, hey, is this a good rate that I should ask for? Or I'm working with this editor. Does anybody have experience with them? And I just don't think that Otherwise, there is a space to candidly talk about Completely. those things. And I just, I, I, I designed the group so that it was very collaborative and flat. Right. So like basically anybody, like everybody's like their own expert, right? Like even younger journalists who are coming up out of the gate, they might have like more knowledge about, you know, new emerging social platforms. So to me, it's like a, it's like a brain trust and like of all these immensely talented people from different, you know, from different phases of their career, different backgrounds, different experiences coming together to support each other. And that's clearly happening. Like people are so incredibly generous. Anytime anybody is like, Hey, can you help me with something? Um, people, there's like five people respond you know? Yeah. Within like 10 minutes. Exactly. It's so incredible. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like if, if I, you know, if that's the one mark I leave in this industry, I will be very proud of it because yeah, I just, and I, the, the idea is that even as I, you know, eventually may move on, I want the group to continue to be self-sustaining and have that energy, you know? So let's get a little more real with this. For young Canadian journalists out there, they think the dream trajectory is internship at some legacy media, get hired, and then work their way up to management. But for a lot of color journalists in this age of contract work and frequent layoffs, this isn't the case. And I've definitely had to deal with white male management in the media that, you know, they continually fail up regardless of their skill or abilities. And so my question is kind of twofold. What's your advice for young journalists? And what's your advice for mid-career journalists that are ready to say, I'm ready to work at a bank with all this work <laughs> drama, but they're super talented and have just like a really like diverse story to tell. And they're just so excellent at what they do. Yeah. Well, uh, man, you asked the right person because I have so many thoughts on this. So for young journalists, this is something I always tell them. And I still think it's like not a very common perspective. So I definitely hope they take this to heart, which is I was very deliberate and strategic with my career. And I think it's really paid off um, definitely at this point. Like you said, the typical trajectory is like get an internship at Legacy. They're in J school. Like I attended Carleton, like most J schools in, the, in this country are like, there are only like three or four places that are worth working. So there's like this weird strain of elitism in Canadian media that I've always found off-putting because the whole point of journalism is to serve the public, right? So we should be humble. We shouldn't be elitist. So my trajectory was like, the first half of my career was legacy, right? In Canada. So I worked at the Star, the Globe, CBC, CTV, in all manner of positions. So editor, producer, on-air reporter, print reporter. And then the second half of my career was at largely uh, digital media outlets in the U.S. And I um, I might have mentioned that I worked in New York for a two-year period before moving back home in 2017 to work for The Discourse. So sometime in 2016, late 2016, I joined this program, the one I mentioned that was by pointer for um, media leaders that were kind of mid-career. And it totally changed everything for me because 
I remember Mizell Stewart, who is one of the coaches, and he's an executive at Gannett. Um, he actually mentioned how important it was. Basically, if you want to make true systemic change, he said that money is always at the center of power. So it's really good to get some business knowledge on the, you know, the business side of media. And so that really clicked something in my brain. And so when I joined the discourse, I made it concerted effort to learn more about the business side. So, you know, advertising, membership, subscription. And so my role has roles in journalism since then have largely been hybrid. They're like part editorial, part business, which is like very much an emerging, uh, emerging kind of role in journalism that's increasing in importance. For me, what I tell young journalists is like, open your mind to the possibilities. You don't have to go down this typical linear path. I like change, I change countries. I like change, like, um, I didn't even stay in editorial necessarily, right? Like there's audience engagement that you could do. There's like revenue models. There's obviously the typical reporting and editing, but there's now there's podcasting, there's newsletters, there's just, there's social media. Like there's so many things that you can do. And I, like I will tell people that when I first started out, my dream, dream, dream job was to be a Beijing correspondent for a major like legacy paper. And clearly that's like the trajectory has totally changed. So you just have to be open and nimble and evolve with the times. And I think that's like where you're going to find success because I've always been really good at identifying like where the future of media is going and then kind of getting ahead of that and getting ahead of the competition. So that's what I'd say for young journalists, just keep an open mind and don't kind of like, don't fall prey to prestige. Don't fall prey to status because at the end of the day, you will excel in, in what you love to do. And I really love what I'm doing right now. For mid-career journalists, I'd say it's such an exciting time if you're reassessing your career, but please, 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 if you're a journalist of color, do not leave the industry because we need you, especially in Canadian media. What I would say is like, there's so many, and I said this about like a few years ago, where I said that in the next few years, there'd be an explosion of um, media outlets and uh, startup media outlets in the country. And that's really happened, right? Like it's starting to build and build more and more. And people like people are getting a sense of that. It's like through places like IndieGraph and the discourse and the tie, like the Narwhal and actually the tie is a longstanding one. But basically there's a lot of folks these days who are actually trying their hand at entrepreneurial journalism. In my consulting work, I focus on coaching people around uh, sustainable models for local news or sustainable models for like media startups in general. And so there's a lot of people doing a ton of interesting things and they're kind of like across the board, even in across North America, you have a lot of journalists who are tired with burnout. They're tired with like barriers, like unfair barriers. So they're like, you know what? I love this topic. I have, you know, there's a lot of programs that uh, incubate and accelerate a lot of media startups these days. I'm just going to take the chance. And so what I'd say to mid-career journalists, like obviously it requires a degree of privilege and capacity and a certain kind of mindset. But like, if you're open to it, I definitely recommend that route because that's what I'm doing as well myself right now. I sincerely mean this when that I'm the happiest I've ever been in my career because I get to work with the people that I want to work with. I don't have to work with assholes if I don't want to. I get paid really well as a consultant. Um, I also just like, I'm doing the most important aspect of this is doing such interesting projects that really concern the future of media. So we've talked a lot about work, but what are some of your hobbies outside of work? Oh man, I have so many. So I really, I'm anyone who knows me knows that I'm obsessed with like film. I'm like a culture vulture. So like the nexus of like film, visual art, music, um, you know, like books, literature, just that's kind of my sweet spot. 
Um, so I have always loved film from a young age. I'm somebody who like, you know, actually this is so nerdy, but my partner, Lucan and I, every TIFF, we create a spreadsheet. So we have like literal, like yearly annual spreadsheet, TIFF spreadsheet. And we basically go through like the list of films, like every single film that TIFF has an offer. We kind of cross-reference it with like our calendar availability. And then we narrow it down to like the movies that we love during the times we're available. So it's a whole thing that we do. And then we basically spend like like a few thousand dollars on the films. Like I know it's like Tiff is, you know, there are problems with it. Sometimes it's like, inex- it can be inaccessible, but it's something, it's an experience that I love and something that I really look forward to. So I love movies and I feel like art really illuminates like... I think artists are at the cutting edge of ideas. And so they really give me inspiration for a lot of the work that I do in journalism. And also, like I mentioned, like film and music were really a formative part of like my understanding of like a lot of inequity, right? In addition to that, I just also love being out in nature as well. So, and I feel like nature is like, you know, Earth's art. (laughs) I know it's like a really cheesy thing to say, but especially in recent years, I've just come to embrace that more and more, especially during the pandemic. It just gives me a sense of ease and calm. And then in addition to that, just like, I don't wouldn't consider this hobbies, but I have two cats and I'm like a card carrying obsessive cat lady. And Anita, where can our listeners find you if they want to connect, if they want to consult with you? Oh, yeah. So you can reach me largely at Twitter. So at Nita, that's N-E-E-D-A, N-E-E-E-D-A. You can also find me on my LinkedIn under Anita Lee. That's spelled L-I. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the two main places. So you can DM me on Twitter or you can like Actually, Facebook, I have the same uh, handle. That's at N-E-E-D-A. You can also reach me on Facebook and, uh, like I said, LinkedIn. But the other thing that I would really love people to visit is, so I launched this new newsletter called The Other Wave, and it's hosted on Substack. So if you do theotherwave.substack.com. So the newsletter is actually meant to document um, two things, the development of the media company that I'm building, um, which I'm not going to speak too much about because I'm gearing up to kind of launch it sometime in next spring. And so it's going to document my journey as like a, an entrepreneur, and particularly an entrepreneur who's a woman of color and just like kind of revealing like how the sausage is made, you know, behind the scenes. And then the second part of that newsletter is um, documenting my conversations uh, that I'm having through Canadian Journals of Color. Um, So I'm basically sitting down um, along with Nadia Stewart, who's the executive director of the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, sitting down with a lot of media executives across the country at establishment and emerging outlets to help them build a roadmap to address like systemic racism in their organizations. So I'm going to be documenting insights exclusively insights from those conversations in my newsletter. So I'd love for folks to sign up to that. Anita, thank you so much for your time and being a guest on the Ignata podcast. I think you're such an inspiration to young media folk, but also you're just such a strong pillar and a great example in our community. And I can't wait to see all the amazing things that you continue to do. Thanks so much, Amy. This was like the most fun interview I've, I've had in a long time. I had such a blast. And so thank you so much for like hosting this platform and doing such cool things. Like I'm, I'm really glad to be connected to you. And I really actually want to collaborate with you down the line. So thanks so much for having me.